The following Bible lesson and other Bible information can be found on the official Dean Bible Ministries website. That's found at www.deanbible.org. That's www.deanbible.org. Dr. Dean is the pastor of West Houston Bible Church. And now, here's Dr. Dean with the Bible lesson. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known unto God, and the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, shall defend your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Thou wilt keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on thee, because he trusteth in thee. Before we begin our study of the Word this morning, we need to take a few moments to make sure we're in fellowship, filled with the Holy Spirit, who is the one who helped us to understand the Word, who teaches us, helps us to... Uh, stores it in our soul, helps us to recall it and apply it in life. So let's pray. Father, we do thank you that we have this opportunity to study your word this morning. We pray that as we study, that uh, under the teaching ministry of God the Holy Spirit, we will see how these things apply to our lives and have the objectivity and courage to uh, face what your word says and to honestly look in the mirror of your word that we might uh, be renewed as w- in our thinking and that our lives might be transformed and our character matured that we might glorify you. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Open your Bible to Judges chapter 6. As we continue our study in Judges, we have come to the judgeship of Gideon. Gideon is the perhaps the most extensive study of any of the judges in this book, and there are many lessons to draw from the life of Gideon, and it is also a pivotal time in this period of spiritual apostasy and political anarchy in the nation Israel. There are also many personal lessons that we can draw from a study of the life of Gideon, and one of which is that before Gideon can advance in God's plan for him in terms of being a deliverer, a judge from the oppression of the Midianites, there are three areas of doctrine that Gideon has to get straight. Remember, all doctrine if it is truly biblical doctrine, has application. Now, you may not understand the application right now. You may think it just seems academic. And, uh, never the, but nevertheless, all doctrine is eventually ap- a- applicable in some way. Now, Gideon's problem is that he reflects the pagan culture out of which he has come. The Israelites have been apostate. He seems to be a young man, and they have been apostate for a number of years. And so he reflects in his life, in his thinking, in his response to God, the fact that he doesn't understand the basic principles of the spiritual life in the Old Testament. He has uh, limited faith because he has limited doctrine. It doesn't matter how strongly you want to believe something, faith is always directed towards an object. And if that object is not informed by the Word of God, then you cannot exercise biblical faith because there is very little doctrine in Gideon's soul. He has no doctrinal orientation. There's no uh, real object for his faith, so he is spiritually weak. We would say he is a, a baby believer, but he's more than that. He's, 
he's in a, been in apostasy. And this raises one of the more interesting questions in a study of Gideon is why in the world does God call a man that is spiritually immature, a man that is apostate, a man that doesn't understand the basic principles about the will and the plan of God. What we're going to see in our, as we continue our study in Judges 6 is that before Gideon can get to the point of being a deliverer, he has to understand some things about being in fellowship with God and what that entails. He has to understand some things about grace orientation because he doesn't have a clue. And he has to understand some things about the will of God and uh, that entails doctrinal orientation. So you can see from that that in terms of what we call the basic problem-solving devices or the basic stress busters, which are the spiritual skills necessary to master, to advance in the spiritual life, Gideon is uh, lacking. So God has to take him through a crash course in spiritual growth before God is going to uh, use him in the uh, battle in the next chapter. So as part of his training, he has to understand and orient to the will and the plan of God for his life, and that's part of doctrinal orientation. So as we have pursued our study and come down to the section, the paragraph from verse 11 to verse 18, in the midst of that, the angel of the Lord, who is the pre-incarnate second person of the Trinity, has appeared to Gideon and has told him that the Lord is with him. And then in verse 14 says, Go in this uh, your strength and deliver Israel from the hand of Midian. So here he gets the divine commission which is God's plan for his life and God's will for his life at that point. And we will see that Gideon has a somewhat of a difficult time orienting to that. He doesn't really want to accept the commission. He uh, tries to get out from under it and weasel away. It's typical of both paganism and immaturity. So that brought us to the doctrine of the will of God, which we began two weeks ago and are still studying because so many folks have problems when it comes to understanding the will of God. I heard a classic example yesterday. It involved a pastor and uh, of, a, of a local church, not here, not someone any of you know. But this individual was pa- pastoring a church, and the church had been looking at a uh, building plan, a building program for some time, and they, the congregation had met. They had raised about 90% of the money necessary to... Uh, uh, fund the project, so it wasn't a matter of uh, going into debt or lack of money or anything like that. And all of a sudden, the pastor stood up, the congregation said, well, it's not God's will for us to do this, so we're not going to do it. And uh, that was a violation of the authority in the church, which was the Constitution, which gave a certain amount of responsibility to the congregation on, you know, on physical, real property issues. It was a, uh, uh, based on a fuzzy, as he explains, says, the Holy Spirit isn't leading me. Folks, that's how most Christians operate. It's called subjectivity and mysticism. It has permeated and infected evangelicalism as a result of some of our pietistic heritage going back a couple of centuries, and that is not how the Bible says the Holy Spirit leads you. I had one professor in seminary who used to say, when somebody can distinguish an inner movement of the Holy Spirit from just having a a bad case of... uh, uh, digestive problems, then uh, uh, we might be able to discuss this. But see, there's no objectivity there. There's no criterion there. There's no r- way to validate whether or not something really is the will of God other than I just feel like it is. And so many people make decisions in life that way. 
they uh, find someone they're attracted to, and so they think that because they feel so wonderful and, and ecstatic and have such a good time with this person that it must be God's will for them to get married. Or they travel somewhere and they're impressed with the beauty of a place or some friends or they have a wonderful time there and experience it. It must be God's will for me to move there. Uh, whatever it might be, people so often make decisions moved by their emotions and then they label that the uh, leading of the Holy Spirit and call it the will of God, and then the first time they have difficulty or problems, God gets blamed for it. And it's a very subtle way we have of avoiding personal responsibility for our own decision-making. And it's sad, but in evangelicalism and in Bible churches, so often uh, the teaching of what uh, on the subject of the will of God in decision-making is fuzzy and sub promotes subjectivity and... Um, Emotionalism. The leading of the Holy Spirit is not a leading of impressionism. It is not simply that, oh, I feel this way, because we all can have all kinds of feelings and impressions and make decisions off the spur of the moment because it seems good at the time or, or we have liver quiver or whatever we want to call it. But labeling that the Spirit of God is not what we find in the Scriptures and is not what the Scriptures talk about in terms of the leading of the Spirit. So we have to go over this again and again in order to make sure everybody understands it. So let's review briefly what we have covered so far on the doctrine of the will of God. First of all, the term will of God relates to three aspects of divine volition in relation to God's creation. Three aspects of divine volition in relation to His creation. The first is God's sovereign volition, His sovereign will. That's the first category of the will of God, His sovereign will where he brings to pass what he wills and what he has decreed. God's sovereign will is also called his secret will, and we do not know what it is. It includes his permissive will. It includes evil as well as good. We can chart it out this way, that um, the sovereign will is defined by this circle. Inside the circle, we include evil, good, and all that comes to pass, all that is. The only way we can really know what God's sovereign will is is by taking a look at history. We know it only after the fact. God's moral will is a second category. I'm going to move rather fast through these first eight points because for most of you it's review and it should be in your notes. For those who haven't been here, well, you'll just have to get the tapes and review it and uh, pick it up that way. Because I don't want, if I take the time to teach through these eight points again, it will be a repeat of the last two lessons and we'll never get through the doctrine. So God's moral will is a second category. This is sometimes called His decreed will. I mean, His revealed will to man. His revealed will. This refers to God's uh, the revelation of God's will in the Scriptures, making it clear to us that uh, what He wants us to do and what He wants us to avoid. It includes all of the mandates and prohibitions of Scriptures related to the pertinent di dispensation. So for the church age, that does not mean we're under the law but it means that we are under the mandates of the higher law of the New Testament, the law of love, and under the mandates and prohibitions of the New Testament. That is God's moral will. It includes what we ought to do, and the moral will of God does not always fit the sovereign will of God. And then the third category is God's overriding will. We may decide to do something, and God may override our decision. God may override our decision. For example, David wanted to build a temple, and God said, No, that's not my will for your life. So David had the will, and God honored him and praised him for having that desire, 
but it was not God's plan for him to bring it to completion. There are several passages that support the sovereign will of God. Daniel chapter 4, verse 35, Proverbs 21, 1, which we'll come back and examine again a little later. The king's heart is like channels of water in the hands of the Lord. He turns it wherever he wishes, showing that God controls history. Jesus Christ controls history, and God brings about his plan. Revelation 4, 1, Ephesians 1, 11, Proverbs 16, 33, and Romans 9.19 all emphasize the sovereign will of God. Now, there is in human history no contradiction or conflict between the sovereign will of God and human volition. See, that's one of the important and unique teachings of Christianity and the Bible is that man has volition. That means that he is responsible and accountable for his decisions. And... uh, Scripture also teaches that God controls history, so what we infer from that is that God has decreed that in human history, His sovereignty coexists with human volition. What happens is people tend to go to one, push those two to emphasize one over the other. You emphasize the sovereign will of God over human volition, then you're going to end up saying, well, it's nothing's my fault, it's all determined by God, and you end up in some sort of fatalism. What's happened in the 20th century, since God has been removed from the picture, we are more and more seeing a, a non-theistic or an atheistic determinism control people. It's genetic. It's in my DNA. I am programmed by biology to, uh, and by nature to be a, what I am and to be an alcoholic or to be a drug addict or to be obsessive-compulsive or to be abusive or to be... Uh, homosexual, or whatever it might be, and whereas the Scripture says that all of us have certain trends in one direction or another from our sin nature, or from uh, genetics or DNA, we might have certain trends. Nevertheless, we're all responsible for those actions, because the sin nature is housed in the cell structure of the body. And so we all may have certain trends, but nevertheless, we're responsible to control the sin nature. That's what part of what maturity is to some level, is control of the sin nature, and that's why it's part of the parent's responsibility to exercise a little corporal discipline on their children is to start teaching them what it means to control their sin nature. You can always tell when there's a parent who doesn't believe in discipline because their wonderful, sweet little child is always running around with no control of their sin nature. So it's a parent's responsibility from day one to start teaching that child to control their sin nature just uh, out of good manners to everybody else that has to put up with the child, perhaps. But that's everyone's responsibility. So um, man is responsible, the Scripture says, for the decisions he makes, despite the fact that there may be other influences at work. The issue is volition. The issue is not environment or nature. Third point in the will of God, the specifics of God's decreed will are secret and unrevealed and unknown. We don't know what God has decreed until after the fact. So when we ask the question, how do we know God's will, we're not talking about this category of God's will. This means, point number four, that we can only know the specifics of God's revealed or moral will. We can only know what God has articulated to us. We can only know what God has stated to us in the Scriptures. And since God is no longer revealing Himself in terms of special revelation to man today, then we cannot know the um, 
uh, moral or revealed will of God. I mean, uh, other than what is in the Scriptures. That is our basis of authority. Passages on this we looked at are Romans 2.18, 1 Thessalonians 5.18, and everything give thanks. Therefore, gratitude is a gauge of our spiritual growth. And everything give thanks, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. 1 Thess 4.3, this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality. Second uh, Corinthians 6.14 states that it's not God's will for believers to marry unbelievers. So there are clear statements in Scripture as to God's will, and we need to be more concerned about living inside the realm of God's what God has revealed rather than worrying so much about uh, secondary issues, perhaps. Uh, point five, therefore God's sovereign will includes His revealed will, but His revealed will clearly is not always the same. It's not synonymous, synonymous with His decree. And we can chart this out by using our circle for the sovereign will of God, and then overlapping it is the revealed will of God. And our responsibility is to live inside the circle of God's revealed will, which is tantamount to living inside what we call the right circle, used to be the bottom circle, living in fellowship with God, walking by means of God the Holy Spirit. Because whenever we sin, we are instantly ejected from fellowship with God, from the bottom circle or right circle, as we have it in our in the diagram we're all familiar with. And when we're out of fellowship, we're outside the moral will of God because we're operating on the sin nature and therefore we're converting the outside pressure of adversity into the inside pressure of stress in the soul, and we are outside of the revealed will, even though we are still in the sovereign will of God. The only way to recover and get back into the revealed will of God is to use 1 John 1, 9 to confess our sins, and then we're instantly forgiven and filled with the Holy Spirit, and we can begin to grow and advance in terms of God's will. God has revealed His will through the prophets, through the Holy Spirit, through the apostles and their writings in the Scripture. There is no extra-canonical revelation of God's will anymore in human history. Point number six. Usually, we become concerned about the will of God in the midst of some momentous decision. However, God's will affects every decision we make to some degree. So the only way we can learn that is to operate in fellowship with the Lord and operate on what we do know about the will of God in terms of the mandates of Scripture. Point number seven, if a man is to do all things to the glory of God, then even the most minute decisions we make demand some level of attention. Though not every decision involves a moral issue or a specific will of God in relation to geographical will or operational will. For example, you might have a decision as to what to do with some extra cash, whether to spend it, whether to invest it or whether to put it in the bank and let it just accrue interest. The issue there is not necessarily moral. Certainly you could spend it on something that might be considered wrong or immoral or irresponsible or something sinful, but we're excluding that. What you do with that cash is not necessarily a moral issue or a specific will of God issue in terms of the Scriptures. It calls upon wisdom, and that's what Scripture talks about in the Proverbs and in what's called wisdom literature in the Old Testament. Wisdom literature goes beyond simple application of doctrine. From a storehouse of doctrine in our soul, we develop epinosis. Well, this, the doctrine in our soul that's stored is ep, called epinosis doctrine, which is applicational doctrine in the, in the uh, New Testament. In the Old Testament, the word was wisdom, chokhmah. 
And wisdom goes beyond simply applicational knowledge to being able to take that which is stored in your soul and to apply it to given situations so that you make decisions in life that uh, glorify God. Now, the concept of chokmah goes back in Hebrew to the idea of having skill at something. That's why it's more than just simply taking a specific statement, don't do this or do this, but it's taking a, the, the whole realm of doctrine and then being able to, that, to apply that in a non-specifically addressed area to make a skillful decision uh, that produces something in life that is beautiful and attractive. The, one of the first meanings or first uses of the word chokmah in the Old Testament refers to the work of Bezalel and Aholiab and their work on building all of the artifacts, all of the articles and temple furniture, furniture in the tabernacle. And it says that the Holy Spirit filled them. It was a temporary filling designed to give them this special level of wisdom and skill in craftsmanship. They were goldsmiths, silversmiths, jewelers, and God the Holy Spirit gave them a skill in what they were producing so that what they produced was beautiful, was attractive, and brought glory to God. By application, when it comes to uh, decision-making in the believer's life that relate to a non-moral issue or an issue that is not specifically addressed in Scripture, the, the uh, frame of reference for decision-making is wisdom. We look at a decision... Perhaps we uh, go through various processes whereby we get counsel from experts in the field, from those, uh, from more mature believers perhaps who have some uh, greater life's experience that we can uh, uh, learn from so that we can make a wise decision. Uh, there is a, uh, perhaps a spectrum of right decisions there. I often relate this uh, in terms of exercises that uh, are often conducted in the military at, uh, in terms of testing and preparation called field training exercises and frequently what will happen is especially if you're like in the army and you're in um, uh, a situation I'm sure it occurs with the Navy as well you have a problem and the commander is given a situation and he has to um, go through a certain course of action and he has to arrive at a certain goal now there may be uh, a hundred different ways in which you can go, you can face the problem, solve the problem, and achieve the mission. Maybe um, 50 of those are doomed to failure. Maybe another 40 of those would produce a mediocre solution or a solution that, where the cost of life would be uh, unacceptable or would be uh, too much or too great. And maybe 10 options would produce a... Um, let's say, a success, successful to an extremely successful outcome. Now, of these ten options, none of those would necessarily be more right or less right than the others. Some work out better than the others. Some may be affected by other factors in life. But there are, where there may be a number of wrong decisions, a number of decisions that really are, are what the Bible would classify as as foolish decisions. They don't really uh, produce anything of artistic value of, uh, in terms of glorifying God. They don't produce a life of skill and beauty in terms of Bible doctrine. But then there are ten different options that all would produce 
uh, spiritual growth. All are, I mean, all are the result of spiritual growth, and all bring glory to God. So that's the trouble is that many of us want God's will in every area to be black and white. We want one thing to be the will of God and everything else not to be the will of God. But sometimes God does not have a specific A, B, or C for us to choose from. There may be as many different options, and, God, and the issue is as much how we go about the procedure of making that decision. This is what happens in, in leadership testing and field training exercises. Is One of the things that's graded would be how the commander and the troops go about the process of completing the mission. It's not just which option they choose, but how they go about the procedure. Because if there are, let's say, for, for illustrations purposes, let's say there are three options that would all produce an extremely successful uh, completion of the mission. Well, let's say, say they choose one of them. So they're extremely successful, but in the process they might make some mistakes. Maybe they didn't. Maybe they hit on that decision by dumb luck. Uh, maybe they did it well, demonstrating excellent principles of leadership. So the evaluation is not always on the decision or course of action ultimately chosen, but on how we went about that decision. And in the spiritual life, sometimes what God is testing us is in a decision is not always making the right decision. But the, the test focuses on how we go about making the decision. The procedure is as important as the final result. This is why when we come to this point, come to point eight, since we can only know the specifics of God's revealed and moral will before God, questions about the will of God relate only to revealed information. Since God is no longer involved in giving direct revelation, he still guides and directs, but indir indirectly, maybe through circumstances, maybe through friends. We have to be careful there because too often we can get introspective and just because certain circumstances seem to go a certain way, you don't want to um, become guilty of making uh, decisions just based on circumstances. But Proverbs 3, 5, and 6 states the principle, trust in the Lord with all your heart. That's your thinking. That means understanding doctrine and operating on the faith rest drill to apply it. Do not lean on your own understanding. That means rejecting human viewpoint. In all your ways, acknowledge Him. That is authority orientation to God. And what's the result? He makes your paths straight. You can look back maybe and not realize what, how the decisions were going. And He straightened them out even though you started to go down the wrong path or you started to make the wrong decision or maybe you did make the wrong decision and then in his overriding will he prevented you from bringing the wrong decision to completion. It's not a guessing game. I think this is something that a lot of people get caught up in is thinking that how do I know God's will and does he want me to do this and does he want me to do that and they become introspective and self-absorbed and immediately they're operating on arrogance and rather than trusting God, looking at the situation, evaluating all the evidence, taking responsibility for the decision, then putting it in the hands of the Lord so that the Lord will necessarily guide and direct and bring things to be the way they, that He wants them to. Uh, if God wants you someplace, or if He does not want you someplace, and you are walking in fellowship by means of God the Holy Spirit and applying doctrine, you won't end up where He doesn't want you, and you will end up where He wants you, even though in the process you might think, oh, this is the way to go, or that's the way to go. God will uh, close that door, 
and get you right back where He wants you to. So we don't have to worry about those consequences. Making the wrong decision as long as we are walking by means of the Spirit, applying the Word of God. Point number nine. This is where we stopped last time. Often it is taught that aside from the precepts of Scripture, aside from the uh, clear statements of Scripture, the absolutes, God has a specific will for our lives in every decision. I might add that phrase. Has a specific will for our lives in every decision. Sometimes that has been taught in the past as living in the center of God's will. Usually it's expressed in terms of a geographical will or the operational will of God. But it is expressed in a way that suggests that there is always in every decision a geographical will or an operational will. That would mean that if you're living in Norwich and God's geographical will is for you to live in Preston, then there's no way if that's you're outside the geographical will of God for you to ever even be in fellowship because you're out of God's geographical will. Well, that's, that's taking it to its ex- extreme absurdity, but that's where that kind of teaching goes. Now, God may want us at some particular time to be in a specific geographical location, but if we're walking by means of the Spirit, applying doctrine, uh, operating in fellowship, then we will end up in a geographical location where God wants us, even if at first we may misread the signs or misread, the, make a bad decision and go in the wrong direction. Uh, God's not really playing a guessing game with us. You know the old shell game where somebody hides a pea under a walnut shell and you've got two or three of them out on the table and mix them up and say, okay, guess where the pea is. Well, God's not doing that with the will of God, with His will for our lives. God, God is not playing some kind of a uh, divine fatalistic game saying, okay, we're, I'm going to make my will difficult for you to find and now you have to uh, uh, guess what it is. No, God is going to make it clear to us and even if we make a bad decision, if we're still walking in fellowship, He's going to make our path straight. He will work it out. So we don't have to be consumed, self-absorbed with those decisions. Let's look at a couple of examples from Scripture. Jonah one that comes to mind, Jonah 1, 1 and 1, 2, we have direct revelation. The word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh. Nineveh is a geographical location. So here we have the geographical will of God. And cry against it, for their wickedness has come up before me. Here we have the operational will of God. But you see, God has revealed it clearly to Jonah. Now, up to this point, as far as we know, God has not had a specific geographical will for Jonah other than he is a prophet in the northern kingdom of Israel. Whether he lived in Samaria or whether he moved up north into the territory of Dan or whether he uh, moved over and lived along the coast was not an issue as long as when God gave him a revelation to uh, decree to the king or to the people, he did so. So that's why I'm saying there is not always a specific geographical will, but at times there is, and when there is, God makes that clear. Often he does it through circumstances that perhaps close every other opportunity so that we're left with only one uh, particular uh, option. Uh, I remember a time when uh, I was in college, a time when 
you're young and you're often consumed with questions about the will of God. And I had signed up to go to a... I had worked for about four summers at a Christian ministry and was tired of it and wanted to do something different and was about to graduate from college and thought, well, I'm going to go on a study tour of Europe this summer. So I had the money together and I was... Um, uh, ready to ready to go, signed up for the trip, and it needed 20 people to sign to sign up for for the trip to go. And uh, but I, the the job I had had for several years was one that needed some technical expertise in backpacking and mountain climbing and uh, whitewater rafting and things like that. And there weren't too many people around who could uh, take on that responsibility, and there wasn't anybody. But I, nevertheless, I wanted to go to Europe that summer. Well, it came, I think the deadline for the trip was like May the 20th. On May the 19th, there was only one person who had signed up to go on that trip and put their money there. And at that point, since it was a summer camp ministry, they, there was a desperate cry that they needed somebody to fulfill my job and they wanted me back. And uh, so I've decided, well, it doesn't look like that Europe trip's going to make it, so I'll go do the uh, other ministry instead. So I did that, and the next day, 20 people signed up to go to Europe. sort of reminds us of Jonah. So it's not so much a shell game as much as it is God's sovereign will does override our will and He puts us where He wants us when there is a specific geographical will. And we know it clearly. And if you don't know it clearly, then it's not an issue at that time. Now, it was for Jonah, and Jonah was to go to Nineveh. But Jonah decided he did not want the geographical or the operational will of God because Jonah hated the Assyrians. They were the uh, ethnic enemy of Israel. He hated them. He uh, thought that they were barbaric. They were some of the most wicked and cruel people of all of history. In fact, when the Assyrians did invade the northern kingdom of Israel and destroyed it, and then they swung south into Judah to destroy Judah, God miraculously delivered Judah and destroyed the Assyrian army outside the gates of, uh, uh, outside the walls of Jerusalem. But before they got there, when they uh, surrounded the walls of Lachish in Judah, they, it was a tremendous siege there, and uh, there's a rec- uh, record was made uh, on the walls of uh, Nineveh later. But when they, when they cap- finally captured Lachish, they captured, took their captives, and they would play games with them, and they would see which one could last, live the longest after they tore all of the skin, peeled all the skin off their bodies. They were extremely cruel. They loved cruelty. They probably made the cruelties of the Nazis pale in comparison. They were some of the most wicked people of all time. So Jonah hated them, and he did not want to see any of those people in heaven at all. Now, we all can sympathize with that at times. We know certain people that, that we really know that if they're ever saved, it's by an extra special measure of grace. And, and some of us at times hope that, well, maybe nobody will witness to them because heaven's just too good. But that's not the will of God. So Jonah decides to avoid this. He's going to um, uh, foreshadow the words of Horace Greeley and head west. So he hops on a boat to Tar- Tarshish, which is the ancient name for the area we now call Spain. So he is going 180 degrees in the opposite direction, and he decides to flee from the presence of the Lord. See, carnality makes you irrational. How can you flee from an omnipresent God? You can't. 
but in carnality, we think that somehow we're going to fool God. So he heads off. He goes down to Joppa, modern Haifa, and hops a ship to Tarshish. And we all know the story of how uh, they ran into storms as God is going to exercise his overriding will and uh, bring it about so that Jonah either dies or, or goes back to Nineveh. And Jonah is uh, thrown off the ship. God has prepared a great fish, not a whale, but a great fish to swallow Jonah. And see, God is going to do what is necessary to bring us to the point of confession and obedience to Him, or it's going to cost us our life. He doesn't make that decision for us. He certainly didn't force Jonah to go to Nineveh against his will, but he brought to bear the right amount of pressure in the circumstances so that Jonah, of his own volition, decided that it was better to go to Nineveh. So uh, God does have a specific individual will at times, maybe many times in our lives, and uh, God makes that clear to us. Another example is in Acts chapter 10, verse 17 and following in the New Testament. We read in 10:17. Now, while Peter was greatly perplexed in mind as to what the vision which he had seen might be, once again we have direct revelation from God. God revealed at that time to Peter that he was to uh, that there was a major shift in terms of clean and unclean animals. Well, the vision was that Peter saw a huge tablecloth being lowered from heaven. And on that tablecloth were all matters, manners of uh, delicacies to eat, both clean and unclean as defined by the Mosaic Law. He saw lobster, shrimp, crab meat, good old fried catfish, had a little soul food in there. And uh, he looked at it and he said, Lord, I can't eat any of that. Especially that roast pork smells good. Can't eat it. It's not clean. And so in his self-righteous attitude, he rejected it. Three times the Lord had to uh, do that. That shows repetition. God's going to make his will clear. And uh, the tablecloth was lowered, and God said, What I have made clean is clean. Now, Peter's puzzling over just exactly what that means. Just as a side note, you will always find somebody in life who comes up with some... Uh, biblically-based diet. You know, everybody's talking about diets now. We just had the turn of the year. Everybody's put on a couple of pounds over Christmas, and we have all the New Year's resolutions. And it seems like every year or two, somebody comes up with a biblically-based diet, going back to the Mosaic Law and saying, this is really a healthy diet. That's why God gave the dietary stipulations to Israel, because they really didn't know how to properly prepare pork or, or some of the other foods. So, so God made those restrictions in order that they would uh, uh, be healthier. That's hogwash. I'm telling you, I am always just... It, it's shameful how so many Christians are suckers for everything. They're, like, they're, they're just like Gideon. They're so biblically ignorant, they're, they're no good. And that's, we'll see that in Gideon. He's so ignorant of what Leviticus says that he can't, doesn't really understand what, what the angel of the Lord's trying to communicate to him. You see... All of a sudden, God gives Peter a vision. And in that vision, all that unclean food is now made clean. Now, did he teach him about hygiene? No. Did he teach him how to properly cook pork? No. Were there some new technological advances that somehow made these foods healthier than they had been in the past? No. The issue was, it's now the church age. 
the Mosaic law was for Israel and the foods that were clean versus unclean were to teach spiritual principles. Almost all, and I haven't studied every single one of them out, but I've studied about 95% of them, and as far as I can tell, unclean animals were animals that associated with carrion. They were scavengers, lobsters, shrimp, they're all scavengers. Well, they touch dead things. It, was, it rendered you ceremonially unclean under the Mosaic Law to touch a dead person because that was a reminder of spiritual death, separation from God. And so God said, if you touch anything that, that, that is unclean or anything that is dead, uh, you cannot enter into the temple or tabernacle for seven days and then you must bring a sacrifice because he's teaching the principle that spiritual death separates people from God and there must be a sacrifice to solve the problem of separation from God. So all of that is designed to teach a spiritual principle and it doesn't have anything to do with a healthy diet or somehow uh, losing a few pounds after we've indulged at Christmas. So don't let anybody fool you about the purpose of the Old Testament diet. It is dispensational. It is not, uh, does not have anything to do with, with health. So Peter has this, this vision and he is confused as to what it means. God hasn't made the application clear yet, or the interpretation, rather. He has simply given him the new revelation. Once again, I want to emphasize, just like Jonah, there's specific revelation here about God's will. And just after God has made the revelation to Peter, someone comes, a group of men from from the Gentile Cornelius, who's a Roman centurion, come to his house and knock on the door looking for him. Verse 19, we read, While Peter was reflecting on the vision, the Spirit said to him, Behold, there are men, three men are looking for you. Notice, there is direct revelation. Once again, I remind you of the point that I made a couple of times when God does something in history. Now, we live in an age when everybody today wants to make religion a matter of subjectivity and a matter of impressions. We live in an age that is dominated by mystical thought and we come out of a conservative Christian tradition that has been influenced to some degree by subjectivity and impressions and subtle forms of mysticism. Uh, Whenever God does something in private in the Scriptures, subjectively in the Scriptures, there is always objective, external, confirming evidence to support it. It's never simply a matter of subjective impression. God always acts objectively in history to confirm whatever He does subjectively. So that means that if you wake up in the middle of the night and think, oh, God wants me to do X, Y, or Z, then uh, maybe you ought to think about it a while and see if there's something that, that confirms that and, makes, and there's objective confirmation of that somewhere along the line. So the Spirit says to him, Three men are looking for you. Rise, go downstairs, and accompany them with... For I have sent them myself. So Peter is sent to the Gentiles, and he there uh, witnesses to Cornelius and his household, and they are saved. And it's at that point that the new church and the leadership of the new church begins to realize that God is, is truly doing a new work in the church age. There's not going to be a distinction between Jew and Gentile. So there's another example of God's directive will, God's um, revealed geographical will for Peter. There it didn't involve 
going to another country or another state or another city. It involved going to a different house, to Cornelius' residence. Another example of God's operational will is in Acts 13.1. And this takes place at a church in Antioch, which is where believers were first called Christians. Now, they, there were at Antioch in the church that was there prophets and teachers. This is in the uh, very early stages of the apostolic age, probably around 40 A.D., not too long after the cross, five or six, seven years. There's Barnabas and Simeon, who was called Niger, and Lucius of Cyrene and Menaean, who had been brought up with Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. This isn't long after Saul's uh, conversion. And while they were ministering to the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, and here again is direct revelation, set apart for me, for me, Barnabas and Saul, for the work to which I have called them. Now notice, in all of these examples from Acts, we are in the transition period of the early church. There is no canon of the New Testament at this time at all. None of the books in the New Testament have been written, and God the Holy Spirit was still giving direct revelation. So they are told to set apart Barnabas and Saul for their uh, mission to take the gospel to the Gentiles. At most, if you go through the scriptures, I don't think you could find more than 30 or 40 cases where God gives direct geographical or operational will type of directions to individuals. Most of the time, the issue is taking what you know and applying it and producing uh, wise decisions that glorify God. From that, we and one example that, that we have that I think is fascinating is how God uh, used an unbeliever to accomplish His will, and the unbeliever was not aware or consciously aware of how God was using it, and that's in the case of Cyrus. It's prophesied by uh, Isaiah that God's anointed, he's called anointed, which simply means appointed one. It doesn't necessarily have super spiritual implications, that God had appointed one to bring the Jews, to decree that the Jews would return to the land after the Babylonian captivity. Cyrus did that. He was not aware that he was performing the will of God. He was not, uh, he had not been informed by the prophets that a couple hundred years ago, God prophesied that you would uh, uh, send us back to our homeland. It was just his policy. He did it of his own will, his own responsibility. And that's a nice example of the principle in Proverbs 21.1 that the king's heart is like channels of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he wishes. That does not mean that God does it in a way that destroys the individual's responsibility or volition. But we see, especially, that's one example with Cyrus, especially in that case, um, how the sovereign will of God coexists with human volition. Cyrus made that decision of his own uh, volition, his own responsibility, but nevertheless, it was the sovereign will of God. Point number 10. Knowing God's will, therefore, is based on the grace-learning spiral. We have uh, covered the grace-learning spiral, and that is the principle that learning the Word of God is not based on human talent, human education, or human IQ. God gives the gift of pastor-teacher to communicate doctrine. When the believer is filled with the Holy Spirit, God the Holy Spirit is the one who makes doctrine understandable. 
Now, this is an important word here. Understandable. It doesn't mean that God the Holy Spirit understands it for us. Neither does it mean that if I'm filled with the Spirit that I'm automatically going to understand everything that the pastor teaches. It is understandable. It's a, that's a concept called potentiality. You can understand it because it's not based on your IQ, your education, but if you're only a spiritual baby, you might not quite grasp it yet. You might not understand it till you've heard it a hundred times. There are still things that I don't grasp and understand. They're understandable because the Holy Spirit is teaching me, but sometimes I have to learn a few more things before I'll finally be able to put it all together. And that's true for every one of us in the growth process. So the Holy Spirit makes it understandable, and we know that from passages like 1 Corinthians 2, 12-14, which teach that the natural man or the soulish, soulish man cannot understand the things of the Spirit of God because they are foolishness to him. The unbeliever cannot understand doctrine at all. The only way they can understand the gospel is if the Holy Spirit functions as a substitute for their human spirit and makes makes the gospel understandable to them. So the Holy Spirit, under the filling of the Holy Spirit, we can understand the Word of God, and at that point, uh, once we understand it, it becomes gnosis, academic knowledge. Just because you can repeat it back to me in the way I say it doesn't mean you understand it. I've seen many believers in my time who can pass all kinds of tests on doctrine, and then if you sit down across the table with a cup of coffee or a cup of tea and uh, discuss it and, and hit it from different arenas, it becomes clear that they have le- learned by rote memory a principle. They've just heard it stated so many times that they can repeat it back to you with the right vocabulary, but they don't have a clue what it means. Same thing happens with seminary students. They go sit in class week after week and take notes, and then they come to their midterms, and they regurgitate what they heard in class. But that doesn't mean they've come to understand it yet to truly comprehend the, the meaning of what they've, what they've heard. It's more than simply being able to take notes, write them down, and regurgitate the verbiage back to somebody. You have to be able to think about it a little bit. Understanding takes a little mental uh, uh, sweat in order to understand it. So once you understand it, it becomes gnosis. That's why I think sometimes we look across the church after five or six years and somebody disappears and they, they end up in some uh, weird cult or some uh, are into apostasy and we say, whatever happened to them? And the thing is, they, 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 they fooled everybody because they, they were good mimics. They were able to regurgitate a lot of the stuff they heard and they talked the talk, but they never understood what it was to begin with. And it's got to be understood before you can believe it. That's the next stage. You have to believe it before the Holy Spirit then transfers it into our thinking. Now, there are two arenas of thinking. The inner arena is what the Bible calls the heart or the cardia. The outer arena of thinking is what the Bible calls the noose. And once it goes into the noose is gnosis, you have to believe it before God the Holy Spirit is going to convert it into epinosis, which is full knowledge, applicational knowledge, which dominates the center point of our thinking. Now, things break down at two points. First of all, a lot of believers don't ever take the time to really understand, to think about, which is what the Old Testament calls meditation. Not the idea that so many people have today, which comes out of Eastern mysticism, that meditation is just uh, 
uh, contemplating nothing, emptying your mind. That is very popular, comes across in a lot of different uh, techniques that are taught today, self-improvement techniques, a lot of different uh, concepts like that are, are uh, really brought over from other religions and then given some new science, pseudo-scientific name and made to sound like it's something new. But in the Bible, meditation is thinking about the Word. Not just writing down notes, but going home and thinking about it. Reading the Word. I am amazed sometimes at the fact that there are Christians who don't believe the Bible. I've heard people say, well, you know, I'm afraid I might get confused. Well, think about it. If you're afraid you might get confused, don't get out of bed in the morning. Don't read the paper. Certainly don't fill out your tax form, my goodness. We might all get confused. Just because there are certain technicalities and a lot of things in the Bible that are clarified by understanding a uh, uh, Greek or Hebrew doesn't mean that you can't learn some things from the Scriptures. Many times when I give you Scriptures, now that we're using this, this new approach, I'm able to put those verses up on the board. But how many times have you heard teaching where you're told the principle and then just given the references? The reason you're done, you're, it's done that way is so you will go home and read those verses. Because we are to read the Word of God. We're to uh, be reminded of what God has done in history. It's only when believers are regularly reading the Word of God that they begin to uh, perhaps put together what's happened historically, understand who fit people are in the Scriptures, understand who Daniel is, understand who um, Nebuchadnezzar is, understand who Deborah and Barak are, understand who Ishbosheth is, or someone like Meher Shalal Hashbaz. And, you know, if you read your Bible, then those w- names will not be obscure to you. And then when the pastor refers to them, you'll have a frame of reference and be able to comprehend. See, one of the problems today is that people are biblically illiterate. And we need to uh, fight that by being aware of what the Bible says. And, and co- as we read the Bible, underline promises. Then go back and memorize the promises. Faith rest drill, which is a basic skill in the Christian life, starts with mixing faith with the promises of God. But if you don't know any promises in your soul, then how can you claim them when you get into a testing situation or get into any kind of adversity? You're not going to have time to run home and dig into your files and pull out uh, your notes and then look up a, a verse and say, okay, which verse could I go read and apply now? doesn't work that way. We need to memorize Scripture so that the Word of God saturates our soul. So we have to go through this process and we have to think about the Word, and that's how we understand it is gnosis. And then when we believe it and trust in it, then God the Holy Spirit converts that into epinosis, which is applicational knowledge. And then we have another decision to make. We have to decide to apply it when the opportunity arises. So it's not just a matter of making a decision to come to Bible class. It's not just a matter of making a decision to think about what we have studied It's not just a matter of trying to decide whether or not we believe it, but when we get out into everyday life, we have to make decisions to apply it. The Christian life is more than just learning a lot of nice things about the Bible, building doctrinal notebooks, but it's about going out into everyday life in our marriages, in our families, in the workplace, and putting into practice what we learn. That's the hard part. It's not hard just to accumulate a lot of notes. That's a lot of fun sometimes. And if you have an intellectual uh, bent, then it's, it's uh, fun and you enjoy it. But the hard part is going out and putting it into practice. So God uh, gives us his will and he gives us the means to learn it 
so that we're not restricted by our environment. It's not a matter of our educational background. It's not a matter of our uh, human IQ because God the Holy Spirit is the one who ultimately makes it understandable to us. Colossians 4.12, we read Epaphras, who's one of your number, a bond slave of Jesus Christ, sends you his greetings, always laboring earnestly for you in his prayers, that you may stand perfect and fully assured in all the will of God. So we can know with confidence that we are in the will of God. Romans 12.2 states, Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. That is the process of the grace learning spiral. It ends up renewing, renovating our thinking. For the purpose of demonstration that you may prove, that you may demonstrate in life what the will of God is. That's application. First you have to transform your thinking, then you have to put it into practice, and that demonstrates that the will of God is good, acceptable, and perfect. And that's what we call glorifying God. So it ends up in application. Ephesians 5.17 says, So then do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. Ephesians 5.18 says that the will of the Lord is to be filled by means of the Spirit. So that's the starting point. Ephesians 6.6, not by way of eye service, in other words, not just on the surface, not just in overt actions as men-pleasers, but as slaves of Christ. That is, somebody who is completely subordinate to the authority of Christ in their life, doing the will of God from the cardia, from the from epinosis, right here, doing the will of God from the heart. Starts with understanding and then making that, believing it as epinosis. Proverbs 3, 5, and 6, Trust in the Lord with all your heart, that is, with your thinking, the innermost thinking part of the soul, and do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge Him, and He will make your paths straight. Psalm 32, 8, I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. God takes on that responsibility. He is the one who teaches us. I will counsel you with my eye upon you. Eleventh point in the will of God. As we learn doctrine and the Holy Spirit stores the doctrine in our soul, which we call retention, He is the one who stores it, then in decision making, the Holy Spirit is involved in retrieving the information for application. As we learn doctrine, the Holy Spirit stores it in our soul. He is the one who puts it there. Repetition is necessary. God uses, not only performs the end, but He also instructs us on the means. So there has to be teaching again and again. And then in decision making, He's involved, the Holy Spirit is involved in retrieving the information for application. Recall. He brings it back to our mind so that we can put it into um, application. Point number 12, along with the specific doctrine for specific situations, there is also doctrine which produces, or there is, a doc, excuse me, let's reword that. Doctrine also produces wisdom. There are many decisions that involve wisdom procedures. Wisdom comes only from maturity, growth, that takes place under the ministry of God the Holy Spirit. So from this storehouse of doctrine in our soul, we then develop the ability to discern and to recognize when some decisions involve a distinct geographic or operational will from God and when they don't. Because we have wisdom, we avoid subjectivity in the decision-making process and we don't uh, get up in front of a congregation and say, well, uh, God has, uh, the Holy Spirit caused me to uh, think this isn't His will and avoid all authority uh, situations and go against every uh, structure established to uh, 
guide and direct us in decision making. I'm not saying that that may not be the, that that pastor was wrong. I'm just saying that the will of God doesn't operate apart from those kinds of authority structures. I mean, if I stood up and said, okay, all of a sudden, I think God wants us to do X, Y, or Z, and that was opposite to what the congregation had decided or what the deacons had voted on, and I did not go back through that process to rectify the decision, then I would be completely out of line. God is not going to lead us in ways that violate the authority structures that are established. That's not God's will for us to violate those authority structures, whatever they may be. Point 13, the, op- the geographical will of God relates to operating in a specific location. And we'll come back and look at specificities of the will of God and wrap this study up on the will of God next Sunday morning with our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, we do thank you that you have not left us to simply guess about your will, but you have given us clear and specific instructions in your word that over 2,000 years your word was revealed and recorded without error, so that it could be preserved for us to give us the epinosis in our soul and the chokhmah wisdom we need in order to uh, apply your word to our lives and produce lives of artistic value and spiritual beauty that you might be glorified. Father, we thank you that you have given us your son who went to the cross to die as a substitute for our sins. We pray that if there's anyone here this morning unsure of their salvation or uncertain of their eternal destiny, that they would take this opportunity to make that sure and certain. All that is necessary is that you put your faith and trust in Christ alone. Father, we pray that you'd help us to uh, understand and see how to apply the things that we've learned today. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.